Hello, welcome you all. This is the third of my series of lectures. This one is on karma and reincarnation. It's a subject that many do know something about, though there's a lot of information that's quite distorted, and much of the information that's given through Eastern sources is not right, which I'll try to explain a little bit in this talk. I'm going to start off this talk with one of, a portion of one of my poems. It's actually a large poem called The Journeying. It starts on page 27 of my poetry book, which explains much of the essence of what I want to teach to you about karma. Some of the points in this particular poem I'll go in detail. Some, uh, there's much more yet to give. So it's a small portion or a portion of this particular poem. And karma is something like a dance. We dance from life to life, weaving in and out our patterning in the fabric of space and time. When one actually looks at karma from a great height, from the realm of enlightened being, one actually sees a tapestry. If uh, each of you think of what you truly are, you're not these forms that are sitting here, that's the illusion. Uh, you're a bundle of colours, of emotions. Uh, as you've heard from my lecture on auras, uh, you are minds. Minds interrelating with other minds, emotions interrelating with other mind, uh, emotions. Uh, your forms are illusional, they're changing. You started as a baby and then you go through all the stages of adolescence and eventually you grow old and die. And we die in various ways according to our karma. But when one sees this, uh, this uh, tapestry, this, this way that each one of us walks through life from, from the inner realms, from above down, and actually sees it clairvoyantly, one sees it more in terms of um, colour and sound. And uh, when you see it in terms of a sequence of time, say your whole life, as a band of colour weaving through the mental plane, through the emotional realms, and, of course, is what you see on the physical plane, which most of you are aware of. And when you weave these little threads of colour of individual lives into a set patterning, say, a national scene such as, say, the city of Amsterdam or Holland or Europe, and you make a bigger bigger patterning of individual lives until you encompass all of humanity, then you get something like a carpet seen from great heights, a carpet of interwoven strands of karma, and that is international karma, world karma, and the bigger carpet is, is universal karma. It's the strands of individual colorings seen over an expanse of time from a point of view of the higher realms of the mind, and therefore it only has a certain amount of substance to it, because karma is... is as it is properly understood from the higher dimensions of perception, is really got to do with the mind. You think as you think, so you create things. Everything on the physical plane is a result of a thought action, or thought united with, with emotions, or your desire body. First of all, you create the originating image, and then you clove it with desire substance of some type, and then a desire propels it into the physical plane as action 
uh, as forms which you'll recognize, for instance, if you get up in the morning and you sort of look in front of your sack full of clothing or whatever you've got there on the floor and you say, now I'm going to take this one and this one and put it on, you've had to put the image of the way you actually sort of look in that clothing and, uh, and uh, then you pick up those things and you try it on and you say, nope, and you try something else. So depending on the predisposition of the desire of the individual concerned. But the action follows the thought, the image. It's the same for, for the way universes are created and so forth. What I'm trying to point out here is that the karma of an individual is really created by their minds, their minds enclosed by desire, and the physical body automatically just follows suit. The physical body is, from our perspective, an automaton. It just simply automatically follows the way the desire or the mind prompts it to go. It's an animal body after all. Karma really only comes into effect when people have free will, when beings have free will. That's what sets us apart from the animal kingdom. The animal kingdom have no karma as such. They have group karma, and the experiences of, the, of each animal is shared by the group, for instance, the herd of cows. Uh, we have individual free will. We have the intelligence to choose right and wrong. And therefore, we have individualized karma. We have the karma that affects in each individual being. Whereas the animal kingdom do not have the um, intelligence to work out right from wrong. They are governed by instinct. They are governed by uh, the instinct of self-preservation, the sexual instinct, and so forth. And they follow out those instincts according to the group of herd patterning, of which they are part. So you see a whole school of fishes suddenly swing this way and that, according to you know, danger in the water and so forth, bees and ants and all of that, um, working to a preconditioned code of, of uh, programming. You know, and the physicists or biologists call it genetics. Whatever you want to sort of label it, it's, uh, it's instinct and that's the way they work and there's no individual karma. But we have individualized karma because we have self-will. In other words, we have mind and we use our minds to rationally choose to go with creation with nature's laws or go against nature's laws. A lion, for instance, when they're stalking the, the cow or the deer or whatever, it's going simply with instinct. It's not going using its will to go against nature's law. It simply is part of nature. And this is where we differ. So when you look at karma properly, you find that karma exists in all kingdoms of nature, but Human karma is different because it's individualized. We have the karma uh, within, say, the mineral kingdom producing the law of chemical affinity. The law of chemical affinity, some of you say, what is that? Well, uh, you have acids and bases. You get an acid and you mix it with a base, for instance, sodium hydroxide and, and hydrochloric acid, and they produce salt and water. They're all the laws of chemistry is uh, the law of karma. The, those particular elements and compounds or the elements combined to make compounds in a certain way uh, according to the predisposed law. Later on, if, if I was talking about sex in the mineral kingdom, I'd say that this uh, law of chemical affinity is really sex in the mineral kingdom. It's another subject altogether. So 
in the mineral kingdom, we have the Newtonian laws of physics. A body continues in a state of rest or uniform motion unless acted upon an external force. To every action, there is an equal or opposite reaction. And energy is... Um, it's, not, it's neither created nor destroyed, it just changes from one state to another. These are three fundamental laws of physics, and these are the laws of karma, onto the physical plane. Everything on the physical plane is but the effect of subjective or inner plane law. And um, to every action there's an equal opposite reaction, it's just simply the law of karma. As I manifest an action, so eventually I must receive the equal and opposite reaction, the equal and opposite effect. In my emotions, if that action is emotional, in my mind, if that action is mental, on the physical plane, if the action is physical. So um, we can go into these laws of physics and apply all of them to spiritual law or vice versa. We can even say God is energy, <laughs> energy is love. However you wish to say it, uh, this is all physics and spirituality about one. I was talking at the beginning in terms of this tapestry of life, the individual streams of karma woven into a patterning and the patterning producing a mandala. This is where the Buddhists and the Hindus and the, some of these great religionists get their concepts of mandala. What they're really talking about is this weaving of the patternings of life. But of course they're talking specifically with these patternings and archetypes, universal archetypes such as chakras and what derives from chakras. And we can find many universal archetypes, the Star of David for instance, or the Fixed Cross and so forth. What I was getting to with regards to this patterning of um, the karmic thread of, of say nations is that your karma, you have your individual karma, but you also have your group karma, your karma of social responsibilities. Each of you um, have relationships with each of you. You all interrelate in different ways. And you affect each other emotionally, you affect each other mentally, you have your emotional and mental reactions to, to each other. For instance, lovers can have their little sort of uh, flings and then they fall out of love and then they may get angry with each other or jealous or whatever. All of these types of things have got karma attached to them. Well, however you manifest emotionally or mentally with another person has its karmic effects and you must pay that. If um, you um, sort of that type of um, male or sometimes female that gets really, really jealous because their lovers left them and does this or that action, um, well, eventually they must pay for that in a future life. It's, it's all, you cannot do a thing without having to pay the reciprocal karma. If you're um, unloving to a lover, well, then sometime you'll have that lover or another lover that'll be unloving to you. Therefore, it's best to be loving at all times. It always, uh, always boils down to that in the end. Just be loving, be nice, be good. Be courageous, give generously because it all comes back to you. There's nothing you can do 
um, on this physical plane that does not eventually come back to you. Uh, for instance, we have a magic hat system, and some of you say, oh, you know, I sort of uh, just put a tiny bit in this, and or nothing at all. Uh, or some of you think you can get a free lunch or a free meal or if somebody shouts you a meal that, that you don't have to shout them a meal later on. You've got this illusion that, that oh, gee, I got away with that. Sort of, yes, uh, uh, you know, I've gotten out of paying for this for, for six weeks or something. Uh, great, you know. And you sort of feel whatever you feel inside. But inevitably, you're going to have to pay for that because the karma is there and the karma does not forget. The lords of karma do not forget. And I'll explain somewhat as much as I can the mechanism of karma and the way it actually works. But I do want you all to understand there's no free meals in this universe. Uh, in chemistry, it's just simply called the Gibbs Free Energy Equation. Uh, <laughs> I just introduced this, uh, this subject, but basically it means that this universe is a container. Um, and uh, in the container there's different pots boiling here and there but ultimately the equation is whatever energy is put out and goes out into the universe must come back uh, it all stays within that whole container of the universe it must be equilibrized everything in nature, everything in the universe turns towards harmony everything is perfectly ordained by law there's no such thing as chaos really if there was a speck of chaos in this universe, then everything would crumble. There would mean no God, there would be no universe, there would be no law. Um, there would just simply be explosions and scattered sort of atoms sort of going every which way and no form. Because there's order, because there's law, um, there's a universe. And there's a universe um, in which we human beings evolve, and because we human beings evolve, we're evolving love. We're evolving towards love. Love is the law of the universe, and that law that holds it all together in bonds of love is called karma. Karma is but the love of God acting out throughout manifest space. You can see when you actually look at karma, it's a far vaster thing that most people think. Going back to this concept of um, no free lunches, it's, it's an essential thing for all of you to, to remember. You can't win sort of Tats Lotto, for instance, and suddenly inherit a million bucks and not think that um, that money is, is uh, yours by right. Uh, it simply must be paid back or you've earned it from a former life uh, where you've done great services to humanity in one way or another, and you're finally just simply getting your karmic reward, your karmic due. If you take from another person, then that person, sometime down the track, must take from you. You must lose equal resources as to what you gave out. It does not mean, for instance, if you take a million bucks from a millionaire, uh, who's a multi-millionaire, Let's make it a, let's make it something something reasonable. Say ten thousand dollars, say ten thousand guilders, um, from a multimillionaire. It probably is is a little bit of an ouch in his back pocket, but not really much. You know, he's got you know sort of earning that much money a week, uh, that much money a minute for some of them. Um, and so the karma is really not the cash sort of uh, dollar sign that you take from another person, but the amount of pain you cause, the amount of suffering you cause, the amount of distress you cause upon that individual by taking that resource. If you take something, it may only be sort of a few dollars from somebody who's really poor and they are, you know, can't pay their rent for that week then you must pay the karma of all that distress. It may only be a dollar or two, 
rather than $10,000. But that's the karma. It's, uh, you'll get more karma from that than you ever will from stealing money from a millionaire. And whatever goes for individuals goes for nations as well. Nations are busy sort of involved in all types of territorial grabs, um, stealing from each other, stealing the Earth's resources and trying to amass it for their citizens or amass it for a few millionaires and billionaires. And um, whatever nations do, the citizenship of that particular country share the accumulated karma of that nation. They cannot avoid it. Thus they go to war. Thus they have famines. Thus they have economic collapses and all these sorts of things. The whole nation shares it. Um, it basically means if you subscribe to a particular policy of any particular government and that policy is in itself evil, that policy in itself is not really honest, that policy in itself causes a lot of distress and pain and suffering to many, or that policy in itself um, you know, leads to the destruction of the environment, then you suffer your individual part of the accumulative effect of what that nation has done. Therefore, it's very, very wise to get involved in politics. It's, it's very, very wise to get involved in trying to set the balance of this earth right to actually try to teach nations and the leaders in nations of how to act, to demonstrate or to protest in your various ways and various types of laws that you know are harmful to the national soul, to the national spirit. National karma is something which um, enlightened beings are always looking at and always working with something which most people don't have much of an understanding. Anyway, we have wars and famines and pestilences and all these sort of things because of national karma, because of national fevery. You have a big, a big country such as the United States bullying everyone all over the place, um, all these little nations through money and through its war machine. Um, you know, for instance, in Iraq, that's all karma for the nation. That karma of, of attacking Iraq is what they think is justified or bombing sort of this or that sort of country because um, you know, the embassy was bombed in, in this or that country. That's additional karma for the nation. And those individuals that, that were responsible for the bombing must pay for it, for the pain and suffering and the deaths they caused. They can't escape it. If you subscribe to that type of retaliatory action, if you don't, then you demonstrate against it or you protest one way or the other to try to absolve yourself from blame. We can go very much into this type of karma uh, and this level of looking at the way karma works. But I also want to get back to this carpet, this magic carpet. Remember this... Uh, uh, you know, sort of the sort of carpet that flies in the air, the magic carpet can take you to wondrous places, and this is just strands of karma that uh, takes us far into the distant future, because the strands are built into the ever are built in the ever present now, um, based on past actions, and the colourings from the past actions are woven into the future, and those strands are woven far, far, far into the future. Lives and lives and lives, millions of lives in the future in some cases. Working in the entire way that evolution goes. 
what I was trying to get to is that you um, create group karma through group interrelationship. For instance, all of us sitting here, at present we're creating group karma. Or we're the result of a former group or that sat like this in a formal life. And we simply come together again because that is the, the way the karma was woven. You, most of you, have emotional interrelationships with each other. And you affect each other emotionally, often unconsciously. Um, and that's, that's emotional interrelationship that you, the way you interrelate, that has its own types of karma. For instance, uh, you send a lot of emotional energy into the atmosphere. Eventually, um, you weaken all uh, areas in the body. You're absorbing their substance, each other's substance all the time. You're sending out different types of streams of substance after you qualified it with your own that's all group karma. And when you look at it at a vaster scale, then you have um, the seeds for group diseases and sicknesses. Why flus suddenly you know, affect a lot of people all at once. Uh, why some people sort of, um, you know, the sexual disease and all the rest of it comes. Um, that's more, more obvious. But people really sort of interrelate their colds, their flus, their coughs, and some of these other types of infectious diseases as a result of um, group interrelationships from past lives, the way you erred um, through past uh, orgies of emotional indulgence. You ascribe it, or doctors like to say, it, oh, it's this little germ that's sort of suddenly sort of um, gotten hold of your lungs and causes you, you caught the flu epidemic, but that's only the, the physical plane seed. The true wisdom is the karma that you created in, from past lives with that group, with those individuals. So there's different ways of cleansing karma. Most of you only think in terms of your own selves and therefore you say, well, if I'm doing good to my brother and my sister, uh, then I shall always suffer good karma or experience good karma. And that's right, you're always helping, you're always lending a helping hand, always offering the best type of advice you can give. You never um, say a bad word. So that karma then increases for you, and yes, you shall reap that type of reward. But what you don't realize also is that you're also manifesting karma to do with your emotions, and you shall reap that type of reward as well. Whatever is created, good or bad. An example of this, for instance, if you're with a, a group of people and you all decide to rob a bank. And you go get your guns and your gas mask, your mask or whatever, and you go do this act. You come away with your million bucks or your bag full of dough, and the police hadn't been able to find you, and suddenly you start strike remorse. You realise that there's karma involved in this this, this fevery. Um, then what do you do? You decide to give it away. Yeah, you might give it to your nearest charity or give it to Elf House or whatever, and uh, uh, the nearest charity sort of thanks you very much for it. They become a big person in their eyes. But um, the fact is, you actually the type of you cannot absolve the karma of stealing with the karma of giving. The way it works is that you must pay the evil effect of whatever you've stolen from whoever you've stolen from, and then you also get the good effects of the donation you gave. It's both. It goes both ways. Nobody, not one person in this universe, can save you from your karma. No God, no Christ, no Buddha. Certainly no, no person that, that, that sort of claims they can do it. You must work 
every bit of it. You know, the New Testament says it's easier for heaven and earth to fail than one jot or tittle of the law. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass than one jot or tittle of the law to fail. And that is the truth. The whole universe will go before um, your karma. Your karma, you must cleanse yourself every bit of it. Nobody can sort of say, okay, uh, I'll do this and I'll get out my karma by doing that. Yes, you, you'll do that and you get some good from it, but whatever you did in the first place, you still must pay for. Isn't it wonderful to be sort of sailing together in the ship of karma? I hope on board I have a, a whole ship full of wise people rather than a bunch of fools. That was the background, essentially, to this poem that I hope to read. I started off with dancing, because um, the reason why, it, well, I've done a lot of dancing in my life, just you know, it's quite a good one, but uh, I, st I like dancing because with me, dancing is really sort of dancing in spiral eights, and this spiral eight motion, when you begin to understand energy and energy movements, is that which um, creates the fabric of time and space, the fabric of the universe is all in terms of spiral eights. And so this weaving in of this, this waft and weft of karma, this rug is in terms of serpentine motion, but it's essentially in this spiral form and another spiral form creating these eights, maybe which way you look. Um, so it's always dancing, so karma is weaving. And of course, your karma, it's pleasant karma, it's beautiful karma, it's loving karma, it's this nice, uh, smooth ride of its sort of karma that's, that's full of um, hatred and bigotry and selfishness that has all these jagged sort of ends to it that you've got to somehow smooth. Life is an eternal dance. Dances swirling by, round and round, in an ever-increasing frenzy, Faster and faster until they're gone. Humanity's gone and the world disappears. It is a sweet passion, like garlands of flowers in the air and the springtime birds singing. It is a vivacious interaction of countless sentiencies flowing through our veins. The manifold ramifications of myriad-coloured rays. Essentially, energy quanta, all interrelated with widespread interdependence, becoming never-ending, like galaxies streaming from a Big Bang explosion in a universe seemingly forever expanding. Life, all the manifestations of the knowable, unknowable, feasible, unfeasible God, is impermanent. Death destroys life, and life, amid its weeping, brings forth new joy, a surreal offering of fragrant breezes, ever rearranging and terminating in crystalline splendor, sparkling in the wind, a metamorphosis of color. In such a form, we are born again and again, as an expression of the senses and of the Spirit of God, as it broods over the face of the waters, whilst our mothers scream as we tear their wombs. O oh, motherhood, who can fathom the exuberant miracle brought about within you. You harbour eternity's journeying within your bosom. Then the milk you exuded nurtured a universe. O oh, earth, 
Thank you for your sustenance, the air, for the vitality you give. And the sea, that was the womb, the chambered doorway to life. Where is deity? Can we know him? The infinite logos, the one life. The silent, solitary reaper, who from an ineffable pinnacled tower eternally watches the parade, the flowing turmoil of our lives, all lives pass by. The world spirals in cyclic growth, persistent though unhurried, whilst the crystal gazer silently watches, meditates, absorbed in the fickleness yet aesthetic beauty of the ever-changing panorama. It's a majestic drama always played anew. Of every being and in every being, the greater as the smaller, wheels are turning, of hourly changing, seasons, yearly happenings, and the great wheel of the law revolving. From birth onwards there's maturation, the eternal wheels of our beings, eternally cycling like breathing, the blood circulation. From this to that, life-sustaining. People must find the hub of their journey if they to cease their earthly toiling, and from that center of peace know the cause of their growing. Humanity, in you there's an atom, an ocean of atoms, a cosmos, a divine spark, an ocean of sparks that shine like nighttime starlight twinkling through the air, over the mountains and across the land. But a whirlwind came that obscured the sparks, then storms of savage precipitation tore the land. The watery elements in the rough earth became a muddy torrent, like mortal beings who with their mass desire and emotions distorted produce a sea of selfishness anger, voluptuousness, veracity, vanity and the like, wrought through ignorance and tempered by fear. People fear life, fear the unknown, old age, sickness, death, isolation of failing and humanity itself, whilst ignorance destroys, but divinity, the spark, lives on. Anyway, the poem goes on, and in that particular portion and others of my poems, I've given much esoteric information concerning reincarnation, concerning this process of living from life to life. And it's an eternal journey. We all travel together. There's not one atom in this universe that is not journeying with you, that is not journeying with God. It's all within the greater mind unfolding. Every enlightened being and everyone on the path to light must turn backwards and help the younger ones um, to travel the way that that person has gone, to greater and greater river three lights. No God, no great being can evolve and not do so. For that reason, stars are born, solar systems come into existence, earths such as this one have the appearance and humanity comes on it, all through the great compassion of great lords who have gone this way before in past cycles, all reincarnating, because every star, every solar system, every earth spheres, but the birth of another great being going through material existence on a higher cycle as we understand it. Reincarnation is but the law of evolution. Everything reincarnates. There's nothing that does not. Every time you think you die to an old thought, you reincarnate to a new thought. It's but reincarnation. Every time you have another emotion, you die to an old emotion, you reincarnate, you give birth to a new one. One cannot think of life without 
this evolution to Godhead, this evolution to full enlightenment. Because that is all that reincarnation does. If you read my book, and I use biblical terminology, using the Bible itself as a mechanism to teach reincarnation, because it's there, very much so in the um, New Testament specifically, when they ask uh, John the Baptist if he was Elijah, and, um, yeah, and Jesus said, if you believe the prophets, yes, this is Elijah reborn. And many other sort of, um, quote, you know, a number of other quotations such as that. People seem to think that Christianity does not teach reincarnation. But it taught reincarnation, and Jesus certainly taught it. Very much so. It was very extant at the time of the Jews 2,000 years ago. When Alexander the Great conquered sort of India, a portion of India, all these teachings come in, flooded the Middle East. They had a great ecumenical council in about the year 4, 5th century AD, Council of Constantinople, about 512, I think it was 13. It's in my book, The Exact Dates, um, outlawing the doctrine of reincarnation because they're trying to destroy uh, the doctrines of one of the great church fathers called Oregon who taught reincarnation. It was very, very popular. In the Old Testament, um, we have certain statements in the book of Ecclesiastics and certainly have karma, the Jewish concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's but karma, is it not? Um, if you take my eye, I'll take yours, and you take my two. And, you know, that's karma. It's just pure teaching of karma. Uh, St. Paul sort of states, as a man self, that he shall also reap. Pure teachings of karma. Every religion speaks of karma. It's, it's just, uh, just a universal law. We can go into this from a religious point of view quite a bit if we wished quoting religious and some books have, have um, put all these quotes together. There's a good book, The Phoenix Fire Bird Mystery, on this particular subject. You know, many hundreds of pages thick, quoting, taking all the quotes of great beings and sages and doctors and religions concerning karma and reincarnation. It's good that you don't remember your past lives. It'll be terrible for most of you if you did especially with your selfishnesses and your fears. You would hate to know that, for instance, some of you, that the lover you're presently with may have murdered you in a former life or raped you or whatever, and that you've got this terrible karma to do, or that if you're driving down the street five minutes from now, you're going to have an accident and lose your head or your arm or something like that, or suffer terribly agonies in, in, in hospital for, for sort of weeks on end. Uh, these types of um, karmic situations you really don't want to know about. And most of you would try to avoid it. Not one of you would willingly go into a car knowing that uh, you know, five minutes down the street you're going to have this terrible accident and, and be mangled for the rest of your life. But it's a type of karma that only great ones such as Jesus could, could handle uh, where he'd willingly go to his death tortured to death on a cross. Most of you and most of us would say, no, 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 please, no thanks, and escape our karma. But the fact is, if you had tortured people, and for instance, if you were inquisitors in, in, um, in Europe during the War of Religions, or um, tortured people in various wars throughout the century, then you must pay the karma of that torture. And if you tortured a lot of people, you've got terrible karma. The karma of killing people in wars and whatever. Incidentally, 
Um, there's a difference. Um, there's some good books, for instance, Dostoevsky really went in this subject quite well, um, Crime and Punishment, for instance, um, where the difference between individual karma and national karma comes into it. For instance, if each of you, um, you've got uh, war coming on and you're conscripted or you're forced to go into it because of this or that reason, and you can talk about, you know, 400 years ago when you're sort of um, under the influence of a king and the king decides that he doesn't like that king over there or, or that uh, he wants his wife or something like that and takes the whole nation to war to get whatever he wants, and you're forced to fight um, or else you get killed. So you fight. In that particular case, you're swept into national karma or you're swept into karma of that king's policy. And your karma is the karma of that nation when you go and fight in a war. However, within the context of the general rules of warfare, you go and do silly things like rape a woman, uh, then that's your individual karma. It's not the karma of that war, of that nation. If you plunder and pillage and steal, it's all individual karma. You may be caught up with the national karma. So there's certain things which the whole nation must pay for and which you get caught up with sometimes because you have no, no way of controlling those events. And of course that's karma from past lives anyway. But um, then there's things that individuals within that group karma um, have their own individual rights which they must pay individually. Generally, you pay for karma for wars, for instance, often by dying young. You may have a flu or cancer or something like that and find or some quick death or something like that and it's gone. You know, you, you've, you've escaped the, the wheel of life or that life quickly or early in life. Thank you, great. You know, you've got a lovely life after death um, before you can again. But, uh, so I just want you all to understand that this type of, um, the difference between um, being forced to do things because... Um, because the, the, the situation around you is beyond your control or um, doing things willingly because you have evil intent upon somebody else or their property. One of the things that's taught in the East, in Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, and um, in Hindu philosophy is what's called transmigration. You also get it in Plato's writings and and some other sort of um, transmigration means the belief of birth into animal forms. In other words, when you die, you can become an ant or a bee or something like that. I have a very long poem in here, um, actually written to the Dalai Lama many years ago, uh, on this particular subject, pointing out the errors in this uh, particular field, this particular belief in transmigration. It simply cannot happen. It's against the laws of life. You have long ago evolved from the mineral stage to the plant stage and from the plant evolution to the animal evolution, from the animal evolution to the human. You have long, long ago um, was that ant or that flower and the millions and millions of years ago, billions of years ago in some cases. Um, you don't need to go back into what you have long outlived and can no longer contain your consciousness. How can the life in a pig as a pig, sort of atone for any karma you've done, no matter what you've done. It's inconceivable. Grunting around in the muck. For why? Because you had an emotionality um, at one particular stage. 
And if you believe Buddhists anyway, most of you should sort of be ants or dogs or something, or certainly cattle, because a lot of people have eaten meat. So you eat that sort of chump into that sort of bit of, uh, bit of a dog's uh, or a bit of a cow's sort of leg or something, well, you get reborn as a cow. How can you atone for it anyway? Um, wandering around chewing grass, that sort of um, pays uh, uh, back the karma for, for eating a, a leg of, of an animal. No, you will suffer the karma of eating the leg of an animal. Believe me, there's karma there. And quite considerable karma in terms of you suffer the, the pain of the slaughtered animal, the pain of the entire animal kingdom as it gets um, the, goes to the hand of the human executioner. There's no way you can avoid that type of karma. The karma does mean sickness and disease associated with the animal kingdom. People don't get such things as mad cow's disease uh, from, um, from eating grass. They get it from eating animals. But there's all sorts of other types of diseases and sicknesses that come through animal eating um, and psychic illnesses that uh, most people have no conception of. The karma is there and the karma will manifest inevitably. And the, the more the animal has suffered, the more your suffering is to be in the inner realms and in your form. You share the group karma of the slaughtered animals and their sufferings. But uh, you don't do it through spending a lifetime chewing grass with no thoughts, no way of working out what you did wrong or right. There's nothing there to work with. Besides, your consciousness is far greater than that and the animals don't have the chakras that you have to incarnate into. They don't have a head centre, for instance. The greatest chakra in an animal is the solar plexus. That's the abdominal brain. If we want to go into psychic science, uh, spiritual science, then we can look just point to the chakra and say, look at that. Uh, where's the chakras of a human being? They're not there. How can a human being be there? Where's the consciousness of a human being? How can the consciousness evolve there? It's not there. How can that animal um, create new karma or atone for the karma? It's not there. And also you can sort of think logically. Well, if karma is such and such and um, you sort of become a cow uh, chewing cud or a lion, what about a lion now? A lion then from this particular sort of form of logic sort of pounces on another animal creates karma for itself. Does that mean that you're going to be sort of a lion for 20 billion years recreating this type of karma? How you'll ever become a human being after that, they never tell you. They can't tell you because the whole philosophy is, is flawed. It's, it's, it's quite, quite putrid in its thinking. It's very limited in its understanding of anything. So you cannot become a incarnate into animal forms. It's an impossibility. As um, Evans Wentz, Dr. Evans Wentz um, says in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I might even read that for you, in this subject, I'm exemplifying this subject because there's so many people that come from the East and I've seen it, it's a great pain of mine to see these people go to Buddhist lamas and tukus and rinpoches and uh, they come back with the most awful understanding of karma. Or they go to Hindu sort of teachers and the same thing. Just terrible, terrible concepts. And they do not have any background of understanding, neither do the teachers. And one of the problems here also, it's one of my great pains, is to see these teachers give these teachings. And they themselves don't understand the law of karma. And the karma is this. The teacher is responsible for the student. 
In other words, if the teacher gives teachings to a student and the student follows it and acts out according to the beliefs earnestly, then the karma is the teachers, not the students. If I have somehow brainwashed you to go and murder people, yeah, and people can do that, can hypnotize you, you are walking around like a zombie doing these acts. It's my karma, not yours. I must pay for that. If I give you erroneous teachings, teachings are distorted in any way, not based on love, and you act out accordingly and you believe them, then it's my karma, not yours. I must cleanse whatever you do in for future lives. This is the law. And many of these, these teachers, they have uh, totally ignorant of this particular law which they profess to know, which they teach. If they were not ignorant, they would not be teaching kundalini yoga and all these types of things either. Because the karma of um, premature psychic awakening of students that have no background and knowledge and no inherent love or not proper inherent love is horrendous. A lunatic asylums are filled up with these types of individuals. Karma of the teachers. There's much that people have to learn about karma. And if um, people go away believing that they're going to um, be born as an ant if they do such and such, or as a cow if they do such and such, I've seen many sort of go through traumas over these types of thoughts. This doctrine of fear, um, fear that you do such and such and you have such and such a consequence, was given to spiritual babies 10,000 or so years ago.